This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom, the kingdom, yes it is, gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, that's me, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend. Christopher Butler. What's going on, brother? Oh, everything, man. It is uh, it's Passion Week, so there's a lot going. It's Passion Week. Don't forget about that, man. This is uh, always a special week for us, man. Uh, I know you got a lot going on as a pastor. Do you know what you'll be preaching on? Are you willing to say? I mean, which, which I, I scripture am. exactly? I mean, I'm, I'm going to be uh, preaching from the, uh, the account with Jesus on the Emmaus Road, mm. a sermon called Make It Make Sense. Love it. Love it. Love it. Well, I'll be I'll, I'll definitely be, be tuning into that as well as my own pastor sermon. Uh, let me ask you this, though, Chris. Uh, were you able to indulge in any March madness over the last few weeks? So I did not get to watch any basketball games. I read a lot mm. of basketball recaps and uh, watched some clips and stuff, you know, especially with Loyola going uh, pretty deep again. But no games. Mm, that's rough, man. I mean, I know you got a lot going on and you're a, a dutiful brother, but uh, I thought for sure. Yeah, you, I know you were uh, looking at those uh, Loyola scores. I was uh, I, I hated to see them lose Loyola Chicago. I thought that was a, a great kind of Cinderella story along with yeah. Oral Roberts. Uh, so I was a little heartbroken when both of those lost. But they did prove that they had some ballers on those teams, man. Yes, I mean, they were, they were serving people up for a, for a while. And even when they lost, you know, they, they stuck in there, man. So shout out to those good Christian colleges. We know they came into uh, got some criticism for uh, some of their views, but we're with you. I know uh, the body as a whole was, uh, was proud of what, what those, uh, what those players accomplished. And let me go ahead and give, give those players from Oral Roberts and Loyola Chicago, also Baylor. Let me give them the, the, the church folk champs of the week, man. We are proud of what they did. And hopefully a lot of other people, even though Chris didn't get to, a chance to watch some of the games, hopefully some other folks did. Any, any other thoughts on that, Chris? Man, it was, it was uh, inspirational. Even not watching the games, just getting the news, it was still inspirational. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, uh, we're about to get into it. So as, as usual, grab your Bible, uh, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican. Not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. For the past, I guess for the last week or so, um, I've been asked nonstop what I think about Georgia's new voting law, uh, Senate Bill 202, also known as the Election Integrity Act of 2021. It was a 98 page omnibus bill that not one Democrat in Georgia voted for. 
And as you all know, it has been a major uh, national news story with one side claiming that the bill was just innocent and common sense protections. Uh, The other side claiming that it was Jim Crow 2.0. Now, I did tweet about it uh, in the last week, uh, but Chris and I today want to take a deep dive into the dynamics surrounding this bill and also into what is in the bill itself. And as usual on the Church Church Politics podcast, we'll approach it as objectively as we can. Uh, We'll even evaluate the accuracy of some of the partisan talking points that we hear coming from both sides of the aisle. Uh, But before we analyze what the law actually does, which is very important uh, because there is a lot of misinformation floating around, uh, I, I first want to put this matter into historical context. And that's some that's something that, that we don't do often enough. But I think we lose something if we don't see it within its uh, proper context. Now, many of you may know that I've gone around the country speaking to politically conservative and politically progressive audiences alike. Talking about the importance of voter rights based on America's record on the matter. You might even want to check out the talk I did uh, with the Trinity Forum in response to Arthur Brooks book. Love Thy Neighbor. Shout out to the Trinity Forum. Shout out to uh, Sheree Harder for the opportunity. And in this uh, event, I basically explained to a mostly white conservative crowd why they should care about voters' rights and why they should see voter suppression as more than just a myth. And based on some of the responses I got, I think I was at least somewhat successful in making some folks see it differently, see the importance of evaluating it, at least with a kind of deeper critique. But let me be clear on on one point. And Chris, I think this is might even be the crux of the conversation, the crux of of what we're getting at when we're talking about voter rights and, and the damage that this conversation is doing right now. I want to be clear. We cannot heal this broken political discourse, even among Bible believers, even with just within the church. We can't heal this broken political discourse in the church until there is more transparency and integrity around the issue of voting. See, here's what you have to understand. In the black community, in my community, voter suppression is in many ways the locus of political distrust and animosity toward political conservatives. I would say, and and Chris can correct me if I'm wrong, I would say that to a large extent, it's the center and the source from a historical perspective of the belief that despite the fact that political conservatives now quote MLK and now talk talk nice about black history during February, this is the center and source of the belief that many white conservatives don't respect black agency, don't respect black voice, and don't respect black representation when it comes into conflict with their political interests. Oh, we know that it's easy to talk about how much uh, we do for black people and how much we like black people, even about how much charity we give to black people, which is good. But it's easy to talk about those things. It's much harder to stand up for people 
when it's potentially in conflict with your side holding on to power. We can do it when it's easy. Can we do it when there's a conflict with self-interest? Now, when I hear, hear when I hear my elders talk about this, this is a very important conversation to them, which makes it very important to me. When a past leader in a conversation that I, I was in, when a past leader from the concerned black clergy of Atlanta was asked why he didn't work with white evangelical Republicans. He said that it would be foolish to work with people who don't even want you to be part of the process. Now, that was a general statement. I'm not sure he was talking about everybody, but you get the point. He said, why would why would I lend political capital to a group that's willing to shut me out of the process? That doesn't want me to participate and historically has never fought for my right to vote. This goes back to what I just said. Voter suppression is at the center of civic distrust among black and white Christians. And for good reason. When I talk about my elders, I want you to keep this in mind. I want you to hear what I'm saying. These are people who had friends who got lynched for trying to exercise their right to vote as citizens. These are folks who were around when the police were beating people like Fannie Lou Hamer half to death with metal blackjacks because she was trying to organize black people to vote because she was trying to mystify the political process to a group of people who had always been excluded from the process. I'm talking about people who some of them knew Medgar Evers, shed tears and had to somehow find the courage, usually through their faith, but had to find the courage to keep on fighting after he got shot in the back of the head with a high powered rifle after leaving a church meeting. All because he had the audacity to fight for the right to vote. Do you really expect these folks and their progeny to take your word for it that voter suppression is now a myth? Do you expect them to take the word of folks that don't even try to earn their vote half the time? Give me a break, man. We got to take this seriously. I, I want you to keep this in mind anytime this conversation comes up. Because I'll be honest, some conservatives talk about this issue in far too cavalier a manner. Save your snarky and sarcastic takes for an issue that doesn't have blood all over it. Put some respect on the names of those who died trying to make this democracy what it claimed to be. If you're really a caring person, if you're really a patriotic person, take these concerns seriously. The fact of the matter is black people have been disenfranchised in this country by law for over two or three times longer than we've been able to vote by law. Like it or not, those are the facts. And unless you romanticize history, that should be very clear to you. 
So if we're suspicious about new voter reform laws proposed by people who act like voter suppression was never a reality, you should now know why. And in my opinion, it's more than reasonable for black America to apply the highest degree of scrutiny to any law that even hints at making it harder to vote. And the burden is on those proposing the law to show transparency and integrity. The burden is not on us. If you can't meet that standard. then you deserve the criticism. You deserve the distrust. Based on the prologue that brought us here. Chris, I'm gonna let you go ahead and talk about this history a little bit, man. Yeah, I, mean, I think you you hit a lot of it, uh, Justin. I, w- I would just uh, say that you know we 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 use the the term Black American, um, and I think that's a very important term uh, on this issue because my angst and I think our uh, angst and distrust grows out of both of those uh, areas of concern as Black people. Uh, as you laid out really well, uh, this is a very difficult and sore spot. Um, and it existed this way, as you laid out, for much longer in this country than we have been on the right track. You also said something that's really great, and I just want to point, point it out or pull it out, um, is that the folks who did shed blood and, and some even gave their lives uh, trying to reform uh, and and make better the voting system in these United States. We're working as black people, but also working as Americans. Uh, this this whole process of voting uh, is at the core of our democracy. And if we cannot restore trust and integrity uh, to the voting process and maintain trust and integrity, uh, in the, the voting process, that deals a significant blow to our democratic way of life. Um, and so these folks who, 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 who fought and bled and died uh, didn't just do it as black people. They did it as Americans. And, and when we look at these new, you know, any new voting law, we look at it as black people. We look at it also as Americans. Like this is the soul of, of the democracy. If people don't trust the vote, uh, then we're in big trouble. Uh, and so you have to, um, you know, approach this with, with that view. And, and I think, you know, you have to be looking at always making voting easier and not more difficult. Now, you you should also make it hard for folks to uh, to decrease integrity of the vote through fraud and that type of thing. Obviously, I'm not for voter fraud, uh, but I think the general application, if we if if we're just good, you know, Americans uh, who want to see democracy work, our heartbeat should be to make voting easier for Americans. How can we make sure that as many Americans as possible are engaged in civic life, are engaged in the voting process, and are able to cast a ballot? I think that's the lens through which we have to look at any um, 
any voting laws, any voting rules that we want to make, we have to look at it through that lens. Uh, I think that's the lens uh, through which many of our ancestors fought. Um, you know, this is uh, something for me, not in the state of Georgia, but uh, I have a couple of folks here in the congregation now who uh, did grow up uh, in the Jim Crow South and, and did participate uh, in some of those actions through the civil rights movement to make these things reality. And, and if you haven't, you know, I'm speaking to those who are listening, if you've never had the opportunity uh, to speak with someone who lived that uh, and who participated in the struggle, uh, I think you might want to, if that opportunity could ever be afforded to you, I would encourage you to take it because uh, it will give you a much richer and more real space for engaging uh, in this conversation. That's real, man. Um, you know, the point that I'm trying to make is if you're going to say that voter fraud is an issue, then you need to prove that and you need to overcome a very high standard. Because we can all you can always just say that they've been saying that since Reconstruction, when, when we first got the right to vote. You got to do more. And I want to ask this question, too, before we take a quick break. In a democracy. In a constitutional republic. What would constitute cheating, cheating a people more than restricting their right to vote? And why, if some if folks have gone through that for decades and decades, why would they just trust that you're not doing that anymore when there's some really shaky things going on? We'll be right back in a second. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We are back on the Church Politics Podcast. As you know, we just gave you a little bit of historical context, general historical context when it came to uh, voter rights. And let me, now let me get a little more specific because, Chris, Georgia, my beloved state, has been in the middle of this voter rights conversation for all the, the wrong reasons. Chris, almost every year. There's a new Republican voter reform law that can't meet the high level of scrutiny that I just mentioned. That honestly, in many cases, can't meet any level of scrutiny when it comes to showing evidence of voter fraud. And the other thing that you can't ignore, Chris, is the racial overtones that are always part of this conversation. In Georgia. I mean, we can go back not too far. We can go back to 2009 when then Congressman Nathan Deal was running for governor. At that time, elderly black people, some of whom never were given birth certificates or were given birth certificates that were insu uh, insufficient. Because that's just how they did black people at that time. 
This is part of what we call systemic racism that we're told doesn't exist. But this is the kind of things that we're talking about. And these elderly black people were voicing their concerns about not being able to register to vote. And Congressman Nathan Deal had some interesting things to say about that. Now, I do want to mention he has apologized. He's worked to make amends. But this is it still happened. It still provides us with context. Because Governor Deal at the time was caught on tape during a gubernatorial campaign stop saying we've got all these complaints from ghetto grandmothers about voting and about not being able to register. Well, I'll tell you, I said I was going to get a little more specific, a little more personal. One of those grandmothers who struggled to register ended up being my grandmother. Lord rest her soul. She lived in Colorado for decades and never had a problem voting. She moved to Georgia and couldn't get registered to vote because of birth certificate issues. These are facts. Family business, but facts. She was married for years to a war veteran. She paid taxes for decades after probably not getting paid what she should. She lived through Jim Crow and where she grew up in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, and came to Georgia in the 2000s and couldn't vote. We should be ashamed of ourselves. So miss me with the goofy tweets and all that stuff that we talk about, myths of voter suppression. And excuse me if I'm not amused by what's happening in Georgia today. For all the reasons that I've already named during this episode and more. You don't play with voter rights. You don't talk about voter rights dismissively or play partisan games with people's votes. Not if you truly understand the history. Not if you care about your black neighbor. I'm not even saying you have to agree with everything that I'm saying or every conclusion that I come to. But if you don't take it seriously, if you dismiss it summarily. There's a problem there. Because you can't deny the history, you can't deny the facts. And your neighbor is taking it seriously. And if your neighbor's not represented, then this democracy isn't what it says it is. You now have some historical context. Let's add to that by talking about motives. Now, when we talk about motives, you never know for sure somebody's motives. This is admittedly more circumstantial than being a matter of kind of direct evidence, but it's important nonetheless. We still have to uh, have inductive, you know, deductive reasoning. We still have to connect the dots. Everything that's true isn't just something that somebody tells you directly. Sometimes you have to figure out the truth from looking at the context and looking at what's going on. So let's look at some present day context and try to connect these dots. On January 6th, as you all know, we had a riot at the U.S. Capitol because Trump supporters had been manipulated into believing that the election was stolen after being told over and over that the election was rigged and that Trump is out now out of office because of it. The day before this insurrection, two Democrats 
historic two Democrats in this age were voted in as U.S. senators in Georgia after the runoffs. These two senators won in part because some Trump supporters didn't show up to vote because they thought the vote, they thought the election was stolen. They thought everything was rigged, so they didn't even show up. And the crazy part is there were actually billboards in Georgia telling them, telling Trump supporters not to show up because everything was rigged. Now, my first thought when I saw that, I was like, this has to be something the Democrats are doing because uh, I don't know what this is accomplishing right now. But apparently it worked. These folks were also very angry at our Republican governor and at our Republican secretary of state for not overturning the election for Trump. Now, I want you to think about this. This left the Georgia GOP in a very, very tough position. If these voters decided to sit out for the next few election cycles, the party wouldn't be able to win anything. The party needed them to come back out and to vote. They had to find a way to bring these people back into the fold. Enters again the perennial solution of yet another voter reform bill based on the idea of voter fraud. Nothing new about that happens every every year. It's a great way to engage the base. Another bill that's not based on any type of empirical proof of voter fraud, just conspiracies and talk. Another bill that can't stand up to the scrutiny demanded by this country's history. As Lieutenant Governor Jeff uh, Duncan said, it was again a solution looking for a problem. But what Senate Bill 202 did do was allow Georgia Republicans to tell disaffected Trump voters that they had stuck it to Democrats and stuck it to the secretary of state. And it allowed them to bring them back into the fold. Now, I can't say that this was the only motivation, but as I connect the dots, as I see the problem for the governor and others who saw that these folks might not come back and vote. This actually could work out. Right. This is a problem again. Let's 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 be real, though. That was based on a lie. That was based on the whole stop the steal conspiracy, the idea that everything was rigged and it wasn't. And that problem, in my analysis, the problem of these disaffected voters. That's the problem that some Republicans, I can't say everybody. That's the problem that some folks were trying to solve. Voters getting water and food while waiting in long lines wasn't the issue that was trying that they were that many folks were trying to solve. Now, that's just me connecting the dots. Yes, there were legitimate efficiency issues to address, but it was angry voters that needed to be pacified at the expense of bringing Georgians together. And it's going to be hard to tell me that that wasn't the motivation for some. The motivation at best was checkered. The political motives here were at best mixed and tainted. Chris, I'll let you talk. Speak into that, man. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not from uh, the state of Georgia, uh, but you know, when I when I look at this from where I sit, uh, you know, it it seems like folks are solving the wrong problem, and in this case, as with many others, it really just uh, just it hurts my heart and baffles my mind why conservatives believe that voter suppression is the best and only path forward for Republican or conservative politics. Um, a lot of assumptions are made there about a lot of people, uh, about black people, uh, about thinking people uh, that are really poor assumptions. And I think there is a way forward for that movement that doesn't involve uh, voter suppression, especially with these uh, kind of racial overtones, as you, as you said at the at the at the end of this 2020 episode, uh, it, it wasn't even partisan. It was it was it was Trumpian, right? Because the 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 officials who ran that election in Georgia were Republicans, and if there were if there was some kind of a uh, uh, an an, an act uh, committed against that. Senate election, it was the all-out attack on the democracy that the president at that time was leading uh, with with his cohort, right? Like folks could have stepped up and and said something different, and they didn't. And and you almost would have to say that Republican votes were suppressed by Trump Republicans um, with their attack on the very democracy itself. Uh, there is a way forward for uh, a, a new kind of uh, age and wave of conservative and Republican thought that really doesn't include voter suppression. Like, I think that there is a, a new coalition to be built. Um, you look at, you know, uh, uh, information that we look at and talk about all the time when it comes to uh, how uh, black voters and uh, Latino voters uh, kind of align on issues you already saw uh, in the Trump years, uh, much of the existing Republican base wanting to go toward more kind of populist and, uh, dare we say, progressive uh, uh, economic policy. There's a coalition to be organized. There's a way forward that doesn't include this type of nonsense. Um, and the fact that nobody will step up and lead on that is is frustrating uh, at times and and I think this 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 current bill is just another another dose of that uh, and it's it's just incredibly incredibly unfortunate you know this this is these are the conversations that we need to be having and don't you know again part of what we why we took so much time going through the context historical and present context is because it's important. Right. It paints the picture of where we are and, what, and how we got here. So when you think about record turnout, when you think about Republicans losing seats that they probably should not have lost. And then here comes this new bill. Right. You don't have to come to the same conclusion I did. Again, I'm connecting the dots. Nobody came to me and said, hey, Justin, this is exactly why we did it. But if you think that didn't play any role, if you think they didn't care about these disaffected voters coming back, if you think that folks wanted to go back home and say nothing about what they did to fix this rig system, then hit me up on the side. I got some uh, I got some uh, 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 <laughs> a swamp land to sell you. Right. I got a bridge to sell you. Um, we're going to take another break and then we will actually get into 
What's in the bill? Is it all bad? We'll have to see. We'll be right back. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast, Justin Gibney and Pastor Chris Butler. We are talking about voter rights. In fact, I think this is like the ultimate voter rights episode for us. So let's talk about this bill. Let's talk about uh, Senate Bill 202. And I just want to kind of go through my problems with the bill because I think people, one thing, let me say this, people have heard what was what some folks were trying to put in the bill. And I don't think they know what was actually what actually ended up in the bill and what was taken out of the bill. So I'll kind of talk about my issues with the bill. And then we'll talk about some things that might not be so bad about the bill and then talk about some of the talking points and whether they're accurate or not. So, again, after record turnout and loss by Republicans, uh, you have a bill in uh, Senate Bill 202 that shortened the amount of time that someone can request an absentee ballot. This bill cut the number of days to make a request for an absentee ballot in half. Another problem I have is the deadline to complete the absentee ballot is much earlier as well. And counties will mail out the ballots three weeks later than they did before. Again, the question that I'm asking is, why is this happening? Why are we making it harder? Why are we making some of these changes if it could possibly make it harder for people to vote? State and local governments are no longer allowed to send unsolicited applications for absentee ballots. And third parties have to follow a much more a much more stringent rules when it comes to sending out these ballots. They can't send ballots to whoever they choose to like they could last cycle. Now, there may be an argument why that can't happen, but you need evidence and, and you need to show me that it would lead to some type of fraud. I've seen nothing. OK, uh, absentee ballot boxes will not be accessible during early voting hours. Well, only, I'm sorry, will only be accessible during early voting hours instead of being accessible 24 seven, which kind of defeats the purpose because you don't really need the box if you can actually go in and, and, and do some of that stuff yourself. Um, the bill also prohibits the mobile voting buses that we had here in Fulton County, which is a major part of uh, a county in Atlanta. And as you've all heard, it infamously uh, doesn't allow people to hand fo- hand out food and water to others 
waiting in line. Now, you may say if you take these uh, restrictions one by one, uh, they're not that big of a deal. I think they I think they could be very considerable. But you may say they're not a, a huge deal if you look at them individually. But if these new restrictions can change the amount of voters coming from the black community or any other community, even by half a percentage. It's a it's very significant, number one, because every vote matters. <laughs> these are these are not small things. If there's less access, if people have less time to, to return the absentee ballots and all this stuff that matters. But here's why it matters as well. Because the elections in Georgia have been so close because this has been a purple state where people have won by half a percentage point. People have won by just a few thousands vote thousand votes when we're talking about the presidency. So even these small things that seem like they may not be that big of a deal become a big deal and can determine not only elections, but a lot of very important policy. Now, when placed in historical and present context, these bills, in my opinion, are problematic. Here's something else that's in the bill. The secretary of state will no longer be the chair of the state elections board. The new chair will be chosen by the House and Senate majority. Right now, the majority are Republicans. And the board will now have more power to intervene when it comes to county election board activities. Now, again, I can't say that everybody did this for some bad reason, but I'm almost sure that certain people can go back home and say, hey, President Trump was mad at the secretary of state and look what we did. And in the meantime, now you have more power to intervene when it comes to local boards. That's problematic when you're not backing it up. With evidence. So those are my issues with it. You can see it's not all bad. And I'll explain why it's not why the whole. uh, Why every element of this uh, piece of legislation isn't bad. Now, I think it's a it's dubious legislation altogether, but there's some good things in in it, too. And many I'm thinking on the Democratic side haven't heard some of these things. You you decide for yourself if it's good or not. Because we do have to acknowledge that there was there was an unprecedented shift towards mail in voting in 2020. We do have to acknowledge that 1.3 million people voted by mail. And one thing people think passed but didn't was that the no excuse absentee voting measure did not pass. It wasn't in there. So people thought it was going to be in there. It's not in there. And that's a lot of people are basing their opinion on that. All right. Um, what it, one of the things that it does is that voters that are 65, voters that with a disability, voters that are in the military and folks who live overseas will still be able to apply for a ballot and will automatically receive a ballot for the rest of the election cycle. So they'll receive a ballot for the runoff and, and so on automatically. Not a bad thing. Here's something else. Runoffs will be four weeks long rather than nine weeks long. I thought nine weeks was a lot. I know a lot of folks in Georgia were exhausted, but that's that's the rule now. Uh, mail-in voters will be given ranked choice ballots for federal elections. We've talked about ranked choice ballots here, and that could be helpful as well. The bill actually, though, and here's the big one. The bill actually, contrary to what some people are saying, the bill actually expands early voting access. There was a proposal on the table to end Sunday voting, but that didn't happen. All right. 
This bill adds a mandatory Saturday and codifies Sunday voting as an option. Uh, most smaller counties in Georgia will have an extra extra weekend, uh, extra weekend day and uh, their early voting hours will be longer than they were before. Here's something else. The legislation requires better notice of polling place changes. And so if your polling place was at the library down the street and it changes to the elementary school down the street, they got to give you better notice. Right. Because people are going to polling places that had changed and didn't know about it. Um, the counties can now start processing. And this is big when it comes to the timing of it, because I think it was somewhat of an embarrassment for Georgia, how long it took us to count these votes. Counties can now start processing absentee ballots, not counting them, but processing them starting two weeks before the election. Right. Um, and any county that does not finish the voting once it starts is going to be investigated. So last time we had folks who started and then they went home and it took them a week or whatever to get it done. If you don't finish it that night, there's you, you're going to be under an investigation just automatically. Right. And we had to go through this. Right. And, and I, what I want you all to realize is that this is the type of analysis of what's in a bill that we should go through before we start tweeting uninformed opinions. Because I can guarantee you probably 99.9% of the folks who were tweeting about this on social media didn't really know exactly what was in it. Now, my point here isn't that it's a good bill. I think it's a very much dubious. I think there are some things in it that make it a bad bill, that restrict voting in ways that just aren't helpful and have no basis. OK. But now, to be fair... To be objective, I think we do have to deal with some of the Democrat response to SB, Senate Bill 202. One of the things that you hear over and over is people being so upset with the state government and the governor and the secretary of state because they wait in lines that are hours long. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be upset if you wait in lines that are hours long. What I do have to tell you is that if you live in Georgia, that's on your county. That's not on your state. That's not on the state. And I saw too many folks tweeting, adding to this narrative, getting upset and saying, look what they're doing to us at the state level. Look what these state legislatures are doing. And that's dealt with by the county, guys. We got to pay it. We got to know who does what. So if you're in Fulton County, DeKalb County, Cobb County, Clayton County or whatever, and you got these super long lines that take too long. That's not on the state. But one thing the state did do, and it's another, I guess, good thing about this bill is that it says, hey, any uh, polling place that has people waiting more than uh, one hour has to either add more staff to that polling place or they got to split the precinct up so that more people can get through. These are things that the county should have been doing a long time ago. And so when people say, hey, man, in the black, you know, in the black neighborhoods, folks are waiting four hours. Guess what? That's on the county. And those folks that we put in office need to do their job. And sometimes they're not doing their job. But I can't honestly sit here and tell you that I can blame that on Kemp or I can blame that on the secretary of state. You can't do that. These are things you're not going to hear on MSNBC. These are things you're not going to hear on, on um, CNN. OK, and I'm just being real with you. This is what we do on the church politics podcast. All right. The next thing that we hear sometimes or that we've been talking about is we saw a lot of people mad because 
Trump didn't concede. And let me lay this out. And some of my Democrat friends are going to be mad at me. Anybody who loses a race, once it's certified, needs to concede unless they have evidence that's going to win a court case. If you don't bring a winnable court case to the courts to decide, then you need to concede. Whether it's Trump, whether it's uh, Stacey Abrams, anybody, you need to concede. It undermines the process if you don't concede. And if you if you really don't think that you, you know, if you think you should really be in that seat, then fight it. Take it to court. But if you can't win a court case in good faith, you need to concede. Okay, that's for everybody. It ain't personal, but that's for everybody. We can't just apply that to the other party and not apply it to our own. I'm not saying that these things are equivalent, but it's a general principle. Okay, and we're laying that out right now. And then lastly, we've heard the conversation about this law being Jim Crow 2.0. I think I've expressed through the history that I've laid out, through the present context, through the motives that I think are there, that I don't agree with why this was done. I don't agree with how this was done. And I don't agree with a good part of the substance of it. But I myself, and I'm not speaking for nobody else, I myself cannot call it Jim Crow 2.0. Right? We see that it expands early voting access. We see that uh, it does things to make sure that people don't have to wait in those lines. It does some things I don't agree with and I don't think are justified. But I take from what I from my conversation with my elders and what Jim Crow meant. I take it very seriously and I'm not going to call it that. If you choose to call it that, that's on you. I can't necessarily say that. If if the provision where they were going to stop voting on Sundays, if that was in this bill, then maybe we could have a deeper conversation about that. Maybe I would say, you know what? It does look more like Jim Crow 2.0. These are just my opinions, but we're trying to be straight up. We're trying to get this right. I'm not trying to make sure that Democrats are happy with what I said or Republicans are happy with what I said. I'm sure there's people on both sides that are going to be mad at me now. But with the Church Politics Podcast, we just want to get it right. Chris, any thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just, um, I don't know, make a little bit more of an, of an argument against using the Jim Crow language. Um, and, and I take this from the, the work that I've done as, you know, before I started pastoring, been in youth ministry, um, working at the Mikva Challenge here in, in Chicago and in Illinois, where we uh, work to engage high school students in civics and politics. One thing that you might not realize that you're doing when you use that Jim Crow 2.0 language uh, is actually losing a generation of voters uh, in our communities um, to apathy or violence or both. Because what you what you say to them a lot of times when you say this is Jim Crow 2.0 is that 60 years of struggle amounted to nothing. Uh, We have made no progress. We're in the same place that we were, uh, you know, in the early 1950s. And I don't think that's true. I mean, I wasn't there in the 1950s, but when I talk to folks who were, that's not the analysis that I get. Uh, and, and you begin to lose these, these younger uh, people and voters uh, and, and soon-to-be voters uh, when you consistently use that language, which basically says to them, there is no way 
that you can actually change things uh, through this system. Now, if, if that's actually what you believe, I know there are people who believe that, that, that the, the whole system is, is hopeless and uh, irredeemable. Um, that's not what I believe. I don't think that's what most of us believe. But when you use that language, you should know that you're telling a generation of folks uh, coming behind us that 60 years of struggle has amounted to nothing. Uh, 70 years, 80 years of struggle has amounted to nothing. And so there's no reason to struggle. There's no reason to vote. There's no reason to become civically engaged because no matter what you do, we'll never make any progress. Uh, so it's important uh, to, to advocate on these issues and to take voting uh, very, very seriously. But that language, I have to counsel against it just because of what it says uh, uh, to folks who are coming behind us. Uh, and we don't want to, um, to make that false uh, uh, assertion. Um, you know, and I, I'll, I'll just say this one more time uh, for folks who are listening. I think the goal of election law should always be to maximize everybody's vote. Uh, it's kind of like you would know this better than I do, Justin, as an attorney, but it's what we do in our criminal justice system, right? We, we put the burden of proof uh, on the prosecution because it's, it's better to let, uh, you know, a, a guilty person go free uh, than to convict an innocent person. Uh, and I think the same analysis has to apply to our election law. The goal, uh, you can't come to election law saying, well, we're going to protect our elections against bad actors. Now, you have to do that, but the goal has to be to make sure that we maximize everybody's vote. That's real, man. Uh, and again, Christians, this is something this is an analysis that we should all be making before we start tweeting and putting messages out there. We all have to admit that too often we're repeating talking heads and on cable news. We're repeating folks on talk radio. We're repeating politicians, politicos and other folks who have an interest in us being completely enraged and just going along with their narrative. And I think when it comes to the Jim Crow 2.0, I don't think a lot of people had bad intentions, but I think we have to be very careful with our language. And I can say this is not a good bill without saying that it's Jim Crow 2.0. And too often we're not willing to do that because one of them makes more, more of a splash than the other. So let's go through this analysis, man, and, and, you know, be willing to push back against the narrative on both sides, one or the other. And you can do that without saying they're the same. When it comes to these voter suppression of these voter rights laws and what's going on right now, I think the Georgia Republicans have done a much worse job than the Democrats on this issue. I'm not saying that they're equal, but that doesn't mean I have to go along. And this is what's wrong with the, the just choose a side. I can say that one is doing a better job or a worse job. It doesn't mean that I have to go along with everything the other side says when it's not true. And when they haven't told you exactly what's in the bill and how parts of the bill aren't necessarily as bad as they said they were. Come on, we, we got to do the work. I want to end on this note really quickly uh, because it plays into this conversation. Uh, Trump's lawyer, Sidney Powell, uh, is getting sued by Dominion Voting Systems for allegedly uh, for, for making allegedly for making false statements about the company's voting machines, um, basically saying that it, you know, that they made it easy for Democrats to cheat. Uh, this is a classic defamation case. Uh, in this case, it's a one point three 
million dollar, I think, defamation case. Now, according to Matt Lewis at the Daily Beast, Powell alleged that uh, Georgia's Republican governor and secretary of state were paid off. This is an attorney with with a, with a, a bar bar license. Uh, she also claimed that uh, a plot. She also claimed that there was a plot involving deceased Venezuelan strongman human uh, Hugo Chavez uh, to help rig the election for Joe Biden via Dominion voting machines. Powell then appeared on various conservative outlets and shows, including Fox News, Fox Business, where she said dead people had voted and all this other stuff. She went on the Russell Limbaugh show uh, and was in interviewed by a, a whole bunch of people making these allegations. And now Dominion saying you're killing our reputation in this business. You know, the state of Georgia uses Dominion. There could be other states that might uh, use our systems and you're going around just making stuff up. Now, after re- after repeatedly saying all this stuff and saying that the election was uh, election was rigged and that Trump lost because of that uh, rigging of the election. Listen to this. Sidney Powell's defense, an attorney, her defense in this defamation lawsuit is that no reasonable person would believe the theories that she herself was going around the country promoting. She's the president's attorney. She's telling us about our elections, this this, this thing that's so important to our democracy. And she's now saying that she shouldn't get sued because no reasonable person would have taken her seriously? Even though in a poll that was done in February by the University of Houston, it found that 83 percent of Texas Republicans believed that there was widespread election fraud. And now we have somebody saying, well, nobody really believed me. I was just kidding. This is our democracy, man. I'll let you take us out, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that's silly. Um, You know, I. I, I read the article and I, and I, I agree with, with much of what is going there. I, I, I have to uh, take exception only because I'm I'm so serious about the fact that we have, I think, a very uh, small window to begin to restore um, not only our political dialogue, but also the trust in our democracy. There's a, a point in the article uh where he says, could it be that no reasonable person, that standard no longer achieves its intended goal in modern 21st century America, where uh, the surreal is the normal. And then he says, I mean, even when we exclude reasonable people, that still leaves you at what, 74 million Americans. Um, and I, I just think that those kind of jabs right now are unnecessary. They're unhelpful. Uh, you cannot conflate 74 million Trump supporters with 5,000 Trump supporting insurrectionists. Um, those those groups don't necessarily uh, come together. People who listen to this podcast uh, know that voting for a candidate does not mean that you agree with that candidate on every single thing. And it certainly doesn't mean that you agree with every other person who also voted for that candidate on every single thing. Uh, so, again, we can call out the silliness, um, you know, power silliness without, you know, conflating those things and taking jabs unnecessarily at people, especially in a time uh, where we really have to be working hard to to figure out how to come together on some things. Yeah, you don't have to indict the country, the whole, you know, half the country. And someone it could, it could be argued that 
uh, some of the people that believed were reasonable because they believed in the institution. And maybe they really thought that an attorney who was fairly reputable uh, would not lie on such an issue. Maybe they thought that the president uh, would not lie. Now, I might disagree with that, but reasonable people can disagree. Uh, I don't think it means that Americans in general aren't reasonable, uh, but you make a good point there. But the, the bigger thing is just know that people are willing to do things like this who are in power. And that last administration, I think that's a perfect example of why we had somebody who was just unfit for office. And I think the sooner that we can admit that, we can move on. Hopefully we can move on anyway, but we need to, we need to see that in order to, 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 to move forward in a healthy way. All right, Ann Camp, as usual, uh, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp, we'll holler at you.